A family that once seemed like the picture of happiness had been ripped to shreds. With their father eager to move on with his new mistress, Dr. Martin McNeil's adult children had little hope that he would ever be brought to justice for the murder of their mother, Michelle. But now the tides had turned. Within the span of a year, the curtain had been pulled back and the once respected doctor was in prison for attempting to steal his own adopted daughter's identity and use it for this mistress gypsy, his new blushing bride-to-be. Instead, this villainous plan had backfired. He had been apprehended by the authorities and charged with fraud, and now the investigation into his wife's drowning was about to be reopened. On this final episode, we'll go inside the doctor's dramatic trial. From his betrayed children to jailhouse snitches to yet another one of Martin's mistresses, there was a bevy of characters from his past who were ready to share even more shocking allegations against him and do it under oath on the witness stand. Would he be found guilty and finally pay the price for murdering his wife? Or would he sidestep the long arm of the law one more time as he had done for so many years? That's all coming up on the conclusion of Devious Doctor, The Life and Lies of Dr. Martin McNeil. Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I am Dr. Phil. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Martin's daughter, Alexis, was relieved he was finally behind bars. She now had temporary custody of her siblings. Meanwhile, Gypsy pleaded guilty to identity fraud, two counts of providing false statements, and filing a wrongful lien. In exchange for pleading guilty, prosecutors agreed not to seek further jail time. Since Martin's plan to steal his adopted daughter's identity had gone awry, the rest of his life had been put under a sharp microscope. Investigators went back to the medical examiner who had initially attributed Michelle's death to natural causes. Remember, these are the same law enforcement officials that turned a deaf ear when Alexis and Rachel first went to them, suggesting that their father had caused their mother's death. Now that was back in 2007. Now in 2010, under the request of investigators, the chief medical examiner performed a new toxicology report. Based on the various amounts of drugs found in her system this time, the cause of death was changed from natural to undetermined. Not what Alexis and Rachel were hoping for, but a giant step in the right direction. Because at least now, 
it was an open question. And Mr. Perfect, Mr. Wonderful, was under definite suspicion. After years of frustration for Michelle's loved ones, justice was at least on the horizon. The case that had been lying dormant for so long, well, it was about to explode. Within a month of his release from prison for fraud charges, five whole years after Michelle's death, Martin was finally charged with her murder. Of course, as soon as the media got wind of a case involving a doctor, a mistress, and a beauty queen bathtub murder, it was sure to be a major trial. When Martin first entered the courtroom, he was a far cry from his former well-groomed self. Gone was the dapper, successful doctor who had been such a ladies' man. In his place was a man who looked frail, old, and broken. He was shackled, wore a yellow jumpsuit, and his hair, usually meticulously combed, was now ratty-looking and matted to his head. He certainly didn't look like the criminal mastermind he truly was. Michelle's family was there waiting for him to arrive. In a powerful statement, Alexis and her sister Rachel her aunt and her cousin held up photos of Michelle. She was the reason they wanted to be there. They wanted to show Martin that even all these years later, she had not been forgotten. They were on to him. They had been on to him for years. And they weren't letting up. They wanted him to know they were there to represent Michelle and make him face what he did. He may have been a criminal mastermind, but they were on the right side of the law, and they were dedicated. It was a trial filled with compelling witnesses, and one by one they were going to pull out all the skeletons from Martin's closet. And believe you me, it was a big closet. It was a walk-in closet. Understand... This was taking place where family was everything. And when this man's own children didn't support him, it spoke volumes both in the court of public opinion and in the court of law. Alexis told the court how she had been suspicious of her father since the day her mother passed away. She also spoke about how she now had temporary custody of her sister Ada, who at only six years old had discovered her mother's body on that horrible day. Now think about that. When you choreograph a murder, when you're the father, you know the schedules, you know the patterns, and when you leave a dead body, you know who's going to find it. And when you orchestrate things for a six-year-old to find their dead mother, that is beyond cold. Alexis had been careful not to mistakenly alter her little sister's memory of what happened. Instead, she told the court 
Investigators gave her a diagram to show the little girl and ask her to draw a picture of how she found her mother. Ada had drawn her mother lying in the tub, not with her head submerged underwater, as Martin claimed. She also told Alexis that the tub was filled halfway and that her mother's eyes were open. Think about a six-year-old child walking into the bathroom, walking to the edge of the bathtub, and finding their mother dead in the water, eyes fixed, staring into the ceiling. It was especially interesting for the jury to hear this because remember, Martin's version of the story was that Michelle had drawn a bath, slumped over, and fallen into the bathwater head first, drowning. So it's two completely different accounts being told to police, one by an innocent six-year-old child, and the other version by a man with a proven track record of lying, cheating, stealing, and deception. Now, you hear about all kinds of props and evidence being shown or referred to in criminal trials, alleged murder weapons and so forth. But in this case, the prosecution actually brought in a replica of the bathtub Michelle had been found dead in. This seemed to be a first. But that bathtub was where it all began. The prosecution called upon the neighbor, Doug Daniels, who had been one of the first to arrive on that terrible scene. They put him on the stand to testify, and while there, Doug claimed that Martin had needed him to come because he needed, quote, a man's help to move the body. However, he claimed he could have lifted Michelle by himself. She was a very slight woman. He also noticed that her face seemed to be covered in snot or mucus of some kind. One could possibly infer that her body had been through some kind of struggle. It didn't seem as open and shut as a woman merely falling into a tub. He also recounted that while Martin did perform CPR on Michelle in front of him, he would stop and start waving his hands in the air and crying out things like, why, why would you do this? All because of a stupid surgery. This fits in with Martin spinning the narrative that Michelle was zonked out, over-medicating on a cocktail of prescription drugs. However, when prosecutors called the plastic surgeon to the stand that had performed Michelle's facelift, well, he had a very different take. He told the court that he hadn't wanted to prescribe all of that medication, but that Martin had urged him to do so, saying that he was concerned about his wife's recovery process as she had issues with pain management. He trusted Martin as a fellow doctor to make sure that she wasn't overdosing. Now, we have to remember who we're talking about here. Martin was so adept at manipulating others that he was able to get the confidence of other doctors. Now, sometimes we use terms so often that they lose their meaning. Con man is one of those. 
It's short for confidence man. What does that mean? It means the ability to instill confidence in others in what you're selling, what you're saying, what you're peddling, pushing, doing. And Martin was good at manipulating others. He was good inspiring in this doctor confidence that Martin had the right motives, knowledge, interest. The most important part of a doctor's Hippocratic oath is, quote, first do no harm, and yet all Martin seems to do is harm. The prosecution was laying out their theory that Martin has devised this convoluted plan to encourage his wife to have plastic surgery that she really didn't want, also he could purposely over-medicate and subsequently kill her. It's so devious, it's like something from a Hitchcock movie. Think about this. He had to plan ahead. He has a mistress. We know that. Her name is Gypsy. He wants to be with her. We know that. And that's borne out by his behavior after the fact. But Michelle, his wife, is in the way. So he has to have her removed. How can he do that? Well, He's got to get her to take drugs. How can he do that? Well, he's got to get her to get some surgery, so she needs the medication. Talk about premeditation. This is a convoluted, layered plan, unhatched across time. And there was more to come out that would support the prosecution's theory. We already know that Martin was no angel. But another woman from his past was about to take the stand, and the details she would allege would make him seem like a monster that had been hiding in plain sight. Back in 2005, before he met Gypsy, Martin began an affair with this woman named Anna, who was now testifying. She told prosecutors that she was operating a laser hair removal clinic when Martin was brought in as a medical consultant. He charmed her when they met, and at first, they struck up a friendship. She confided in him about her estranged husband, and she claimed that he offered her advice and to serve as a liaison between them. Well, after a short time, their relationship escalated, and she allegedly embarked on an affair with Dr. McNeil. But his previous affair wasn't the source of surprise to the court. It's what his mistress alleged he confided in her that raised eyebrows. She claimed that during a, quote, pillow talk session, he let it slip that he had a secret method to induce an undetectable heart attack in someone. Had this been his plan for Michelle? Or had he intended to have her overdose and then drowned her when she was still alive? But there was even more to Anna's story. As the courtroom listened, absolutely transfixed, she told a story about Martin that suggested his penchant for murder might have started long before his wife's drowning. She alleged that he told her he had killed his brother Roy. How? in a bathtub in his house in New Jersey. She said Martin told her his motive for doing this was that Roy 
had become, quote, an embarrassment. Now, not much is known about his brother, but there were reports that he had tried to kill himself multiple times before he ultimately drowned. This mistress, Anna, recounted that Martin wanted his brother dead because his mental issues were bringing shame to the family's reputation. She also claimed he told her he had once tried to kill his own mother. This all allegedly happened years ago, so there was no way for police to connect Martin to his brother's death. However, it was certainly chilling to know that Michelle might not have been his first brush with homicide. Now, what does this say about Martin? Clearly, there's no proof of this. There's no evidence. But here is a woman that has nothing to gain that's coming forward and saying, okay, Michelle is killed in a bathtub. She says he has confided in her that he killed his brother in a bathtub. Is this of interest to a jury? I can tell you, having spent years as a trial scientist working with a jury, that the old saying, where there's smoke, there's fire, is definitely true in the jury box. I guarantee you they will go back in that jury room and talk about the parallels here. And then when she says that he once tried to kill his own mother, we now have not one, not two, but three reports of him cold-bloodedly considering or acting on ending someone else's life. First of all, this might be a heads-up to jury that he's a serial philanderer. Who knows how many women he romanced on the sly throughout the years. Now, whether he was lying or telling the truth, he is definitely a disturbed man. If he's lying, his motive could be that he thinks he's somehow impressing this woman. Perhaps it's his way of gaining control. He puts the fear of God in her by boasting about getting away with false crimes, about killing people that irritate him or get on his bad side. Maybe it's his way of keeping her in check. And if he's telling the truth, well, then he's a murderer, a sociopathic murderer, which is damn sure going to scare her. Now, when I say sociopath, I don't use that in an offhanded way. I'm talking about someone that has zero empathy, believes they're above the law, can get away with whatever they want to do. And when you look at it against the backdrop of his whole life, falsifying transcripts into college, sending a daughter back to the Ukraine and abandoning her, stealing her identity, moving his mistress into his dead wife's home and expecting his children to accept her as a nanny, this is a very one-sided, narcissistic view of the world. There's no sense of remorse here. This is all whatever is good for me, I'll do, and the hell with you. Martin's defense team knew that Anna had a lot to say about him, and they were ready with the rebuttal. They painted her as an unreliable witness, mentioning that she had a history of mental problems. They questioned her about her bizarre interactions with investigators. Apparently, she had been emailing with them, referencing clues to the case that she said she had seen in her dreams. 
She asked investigators in these emails about random, non-relevant details, such as if they had found a white Toyota or Michelle's autopsy report had mentioned anything about her toes. Bizarre to be sure. But still, if this woman was telling the truth, then this man had not only been a con man for years, but also a murderer. And a lot of what she said was corroborated by factual history. And we're talking about a murderer who for years had known how to cause so-called undetectable heart attacks. If you're a doctor, that's the last thing you want to be known for. So clearly, this case was not going well for Martin. And if it had ended right there, mm, bad day at the courthouse for Dr. McNeil. But there was still more to come. A series of inmates who had been imprisoned with Martin testified for the prosecution under the condition of anonymity. Behind bars, they called Martin Doc and they had a lot of interesting anecdotes to share with the court about their time with him. Remember that bad foot Martin was always talking about? He sometimes used a cane. He claimed he had toe cancer. He even blamed that pesky toe as the reason he couldn't lift his wife's lifeless body out of the tub. Well, in prison, he seemed to move about just fine. No walker, no cane. They claimed that Martin sang like a canary when it came to his relationship with his wife before her death and that he confided in them that the marriage was going downhill. One inmate claimed that he didn't want her to get his money and that he knew she wasn't going to put up with him cheating on her any longer. Another reported that he flat out confessed to giving her a combination of Oxycontin and sleeping pills and then holding her head underwater for a little while. Even more chilling? A third inmate who testified that Martin said, the bitch drowned. That's a quote, the bitch drowned. None of these witnesses are perfect. You've got a woman who's reporting dream sequences. You've got witnesses who are jailhouse snitches, but they sure seem to be hitting on some facts that if random are awfully lucky guesses. Even if you discount some of what they say, it wasn't looking good for Martin. And the most mysterious figure of all in this twisted story, his lover and nanny gypsy, was about to take the stand. And she wasn't taking the stand for the defense. She was taking the stand for the prosecution. This was part of her deal in getting a reduced sentence. So again, not a perfect witness, because she had made a trade. I asked Gypsy about the breakup of their relationship and her trial testimony when I sat down to ask her about how all of this went down. Is there any point at which you would have said, this is too much, I'm out of here? Well, he did. He threw me in prison, and that was enough. That's what that was. How did he throw you in prison? Well, I had done all of the things that he'd asked me to do, believing that he knew what what was what was going to be all right. Okay, and, and you said, look, he's, he said to you, which one of us has a law degree, right? But you don't need a law degree to know that using someone else's identity 
using someone else's social security number to evade getting on the radar screen of the government when you now have access to money or for any other reason. You don't need a law degree to know that that is a crime. I do, I know. So We argued about that. Um, I did question him and I, and I thought, again, I, you know, love is blind. I, I thought he knew best. You cut a deal for some modified immunity to testify against him at trial, correct? Modified immunity. Did you make a deal with the prosecutors? To testify? Yes. Um, the, the deal that I made with the state of Utah was that um, when they brought state charges for the same activity that we had done federally, um, because they're considered separate courts, so they can charge you both ways. Um, rather than, than doing another state sentence, one of the criteria was that I would be, would be willing to testify against Martin in, in any legal um, situations that might come up. At that point, there were no charges filed. Did you testify against him at trial? I did. And what was the most damning thing that you testified about? I, our relationship was the damning situation there. Which brings us full circle back to you became motive. When Gypsy took the stand, you could hear a pin drop in the courtroom. I have a hard time with that, Dr. Phil. I understand. But they used you as motive. They used me as motive, yes. They said you, because he was involved with you, in love with you, yes. he needed to get rid of her. That's and what that was say. his motive. Gypsy admitted under oath that she had been having an affair with Martin McNeil before his wife, Michelle, passed. Once they became intimate, she said they began seeing each other routinely a couple of times a month. The prosecution knew that Gypsy was the linchpin in their case. She was their motive. Martin might not have had blood on his hands that one could physically see, but according to them, his actions were the real smoking gun. They showed how little by little she was becoming a central figure in Martin's life, a woman he allegedly cared deeply for. Just one month before Michelle's death, Martin moved Gypsy into a duplex in Lahai, Utah. He paid for her rent. He also provided her with a debit card. Gypsy spilled all the dirty details on the stand. The calls they exchanged on the day of Michelle's death. The texts they sent back and forth during her funeral. That's right, during her funeral. None of it was making Martin look like husband of the year. The prosecutor also brought to light love letters the two had exchanged while Martin was in prison. So while this man is behind bars for stealing his daughter's identity, after his wife's suspicious death, he's making a priority to write lovey-dovey letters to his mistress. When questioned about this, Gypsy tried to explain it away on the stand saying, this is two years after she passed away. The prosecutor retorted, I'll ask the questions, thanks. She was made to read excerpts of these letters out loud to the court. She claimed that she had no intention of being with him once he was released, but that she welcomed the communication and attention from him because she was lonely. The excerpts Gypsy shared were cringeworthy. Like Romeo and Juliet, these star-crossed fraudsters considered themselves to be already married. In one of his letters, Martin wrote to her, Quote, 
Dear sweetheart, I have informed them here that you are my common-law wife. Close quotes. These lovebirds sent many sappy notes back and forth while he was locked up. Some of the sentiments he shared with her included, and these are quotes. I love and miss you every minute. I love you and have loved you from the day we met. Why don't we just get married for real? I'm dieting and exercising so you will not have to expect a hefty husband when this is over. You have to hand it to Martin. This is a man who's always planning his next move. We've seen a pattern where he takes people, he uses them, then disposes them once he decides he's done. But with Gypsy, she's the alleged reason for all this crime. She's the alleged reason he wanted his wife gone. He stole his daughter's identity for her in order to wipe away her debts. His focus was to build a future for the two of them, and at this point, the stakes are high. So he's not on trial for murder at this point. His life's in a shambles, and he's clinging to Gypsy because she's all he's got left at this point, and he's still planning for his future. He wants to be married to her. He's still preoccupied with superficial things like how he's looking, and you've got to wonder. He knows he's got two daughters out there, that are relentlessly pursuing him. Is he thinking, I need to keep her on the hook because I don't want her flipping on me. I want to be sure she feels loved. So is he still playing her? It's interesting to note that when Gypsy read parts of those love letters on the stand, that was the only time that Martin cried. When she stepped down and was escorted from the room, observers noticed that she seemed to softly drag her fingers down the table where Martin was seated. In a bizarre way, it sort of looked like her way of reaching out to him, of secretly showing him her support. The closing arguments were as dramatic as the case itself. Prosecutor Chad Grunader called this case an almost perfect murder. The prosecution painted Martin as a man who was at a crossroads in life. The clock was ticking and he was feeling the pressure. He had to choose either his wife or his mistress and he wanted the mistress. He pushed his wife to get surgery. They said he ended her life in that tub. They urged the jury to convict him of murder. The defense, meanwhile, honed in on the fact that the evidence being used against Martin was just circumstantial. They referenced the medical examiner's first ruling, that she had died of a heart condition. They conceded that, yes, Martin had a mistress. He was whining and dining on the side, but that that made him a cad, not a murderer. They urged the jury to find Martin innocent, saying that the prosecution had not proved without a reasonable doubt that he was the one responsible for his wife's death. The jury listened. They weighed it carefully. But in just a matter of hours, the eight-person jury returned a verdict. For the murder of Michelle McNeil, Martin was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to 15 years to life. 
When the judge handed down his sentence, he told Martin he was guilty of committing murder with, quote, unmitigated selfishness that really shocks the conscious. His daughters wept. Finally, there was justice for their mother. During the sentencing, Martin showed little or no emotion. He was seen chatting and even chuckling with his attorneys. What he could possibly find amusing at this point was anyone's guess. But his daughters and Michelle's family finally got the chance to confront him. It no longer mattered what he said or what he did. For the first time, they were able to tell him exactly what they thought of him and what he had done. And he could not interrupt them or try to twist the narrative for his own benefit. Michelle's sister, Linda, summed up her emotion during her statement when she turned from the judge and said to Martin, quote, I can finally look into the eyes of my sister's murderer and say, Martin, you haven't gotten away with this. I asked Gypsy now that all had been said and done how she viewed this man she once thought was her soulmate. Are you still in love with him? No. There's, there's a part of me that will always care for Martin. Um, we, had, we had a deep connection, but um, I'm not in love with him now. Mm-hmm. I care for him. I hope he's all right. I mean, I have, I have thoughts of him, you know, but I, I'm not in love with him now. There is more than just a possibility that he killed his wife. I mean, he has been convicted of it. He has been convicted, yes. Now I had to ask her, after all of this, and remember, she was never charged with being a co-conspirator, and she has denied any involvement in Michelle's death, but still, I had to ask her if her view of Martin's involvement in Michelle's death had now changed. Here's what she said. As you sit here today, do you believe he is guilty, or do you believe he's innocent? Um... You know, the jury came back and they said that he's guilty and I have to respect the jury I believe that they made a decision based on emotion I, I believe he did not kill Michelle you, you think that it was an accidental death I, that, I do I think it was a natural death did he chew you up and spit you out he betrayed all of us all of our trust all of us even me I he he's destroyed my life but even so, I, you know, having been there and looking at the facts and being very analytical, it's hard for me to accept. Sorry. This may be a very expensive education here. <laughs> it has been. But it's really expensive if you really don't learn anything from it. That's why I said, is there any point here at which you would go, that's enough? My God, no, okay. So you're married, you didn't tell me that right away. I learned it and stayed in it, shouldn't have. Then you want me to steal somebody's identity, use another's social security number. I'm not paying the government. He just continues to do things that seem very sociopathic to me, just in terms of no conscience and, you know, picking your wedding date as the funeral date. And I mean, things like that just, to me are just so narcissistic and sociopathic and you blew right by them and you got to learn from that. Oh yeah. Many lessons learned, I promise. Martin had done it. He had officially lost everything. He wasn't a doctor anymore. He didn't have his family anymore. 
And now the woman for whom he had committed so much evil was gone too. So where does this leave the McNeil family? In the year since their father's conviction, these young women who've been put through so much have worked hard to move past their pain. The man who had once tucked them in at night, the man who had hugged them and done silly impromptu dances on home videos, that father no longer exists. What remained were memories of a life that hadn't been real. Behind closed doors, nothing had been what it seemed. The McNeil children, despite it all, had persevered. Alexis, the unsung heroine of this story, adopted her younger sisters, became a doctor, changed her last name to her mother's maiden name, Summers. Rachel enrolled in school to become a social worker so she could help others. The other adopted children are also thriving. One recently had her first baby and one graduated high school. You know, I've met a lot of families over the years, and it's impressive to see how his daughters did their best to keep the family unit together after all this chaos. They hung together in a united front. All this betrayal, the death of their mother, it could have shattered them, but they just said no. Their only brother, Damien, had been their father's sole defender, and in 2010, before their father was brought to trial for Michelle's mother, Damien overdosed on prescription medication, and sadly, he passed away. So there's a litany of things going on here. Any one of them would be enough to cause terrible emotional trauma, and these sisters... Well, they just had them going on all at once. Their mother is dead. They believe their father did it. Their brother has overdosed. It's just been a decade of pain. They've had to re-engineer this family unit. You've got to recognize that everyone's affected. The whole family has been wounded, and that needs to be recognized. So often it's not. There's blame, detachment. But it does no good to get stuck in the past. That's a monster I've repeated to families that so desperately want to move forward but remain stuck in time. The past is over. The future hasn't happened yet. The only time is now. Not even God can change what has happened. But we all have free will. We all get a chance to choose. It's what we do now that matters. This family has been a model example of being able to do that. So what's become of Martin? Well, he went on to appeal his murder conviction, but ultimately was denied a new trial by the state of Utah. On April 9th of 2017, Alexis received a phone call from the Utah State Prison. Martin McNeil had been found dead in an outside yard next to the prison greenhouse. He had taken his own life. According to the final report, he used the hose and gas line that was used to heat the greenhouse to end his own life. He did this in an area where he could not be seen by cameras. Two fellow inmates discovered his body. According to his lawyers and others who knew him, he had been despondent ever since his appeal had been thrown out because he knew he faced a lifetime behind bars. He had tried to commit suicide in 2013 But this time, 
four years later, he succeeded. He killed himself only a few days before the 10th anniversary of Michelle's murder. The sisters attended their father's funeral. As they stood over his body, they realized that after years of living in the torment he created, he was no longer powerful. He was no longer able to cause them pain. This chapter of their lives was over. This is a story of murder, betrayal, and family strife, but it's also a story of hope. Despite their pain and tragedy, Martin McNeil's daughters were able to persevere and preserve their bond and out of the ashes of tragedy create new lives for themselves. I have no doubt that their mother, Michelle Summers, looks down on them now and smiles with pride. You've been listening to Devious Doctor, The Life and Lies of Dr. Martin McNeil, Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil.